Welcome to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a podcast from the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal. In this podcast, we explore the ever-fascinating connections between brain, body, health, and happiness. For this episode, we're going to be talking with Dr. Ron Swatsina, Director and Chief Scientist of Neurophysiology Research at Houston Neuroscience Brain Center and founder of Clinical Neuroanalytics. He's a licensed social worker and BCIA certified in biofeedback and neurofeedback. Dr. Ron, as he likes to be called, has been working with diagnostically challenging cases for almost 25 years, using neurofeedback and EEG-based approaches for improving the lives of individuals with a wide range of conditions. He's also a prolific researcher and writer on brain dysfunction. If that's not enough, he retired as a professional firefighter EMT and is a veteran of both the Vietnam conflict and the first Gulf War. Dr. Ron, welcome to Healthy Brain, Happy Body. Glad to be here. Appreciate it. You've been working in the mental health field for, for a long time, social worker, neurofeedback practitioner, and it seems like you've had an interesting path to this field. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up focusing on neurofeedback, neuroregulation, on brain dysfunction. Well, it's interesting that uh, my pathway to this was quite complicated uh, and started with multiple head concussions, brain, brain injuries during um, high school football. I had at least six uh, pretty serious concussions and that didn't stop me at the time. We just didn't understand the ramifications. So when I tried to go to college, obviously the scholarships didn't come through. Uh, my brain wasn't ready for college and I flunked out of Memphis State at 1.23 grade point average. They pulled my draft deferment away and sent me to Vietnam instead. So <laughs> I actually joined the Air Force to avoid the draft, but ended up right in the middle of it anyway. So um, uh, I did try to go back to school from my first duty station, uh, Tinker Air Force Base, Oklahoma. And I happened to take an English course. And they said I could write a paper on anything I wanted to write on. I said, well, okay, that's interesting. So I went to the library and I found this concept called biofeedback, an emerging uh, concept in the... Uh, um, in the early 1970s, I guess it was uh, 1972, actually, 73, I think I was in college there. So I wrote a paper on biofeedback and association with human health in the next 20 years. So that was my first taste of, you know, I really thought this was interesting that the brain could control bodily functions we didn't think we could control. I like control, so <laughs> that was good for me. I made an A in that course, which was quite surprising considering my condition, but I was in a different place. Um, and military really did help me through concussions because it's very organized, very regimented. And um, I think that's a, a good way to recover from a lot of concussions. At least it was my way. And then um, fast forward through multiple careers and everything else. I was a commercial diver here in the Gulf uh, after getting a two-year associate's degree after I got back from Vietnam and I took home to Washington. And then um, that industry dried up 1980. And then uh, 83, I joined the fire department um, and then got back into the Air National Guard. So when I got back into uh, college, it was, uh, I didn't really do much between my associate's degree and Desert Storm. Once I got back from Desert Storm, it's like I really had to finish these degrees because I started in 71 and this was 1991. So it's like, hmm, what a delay, but I needed to get it finished. So I walked into the uh, University of Texas at Arlington and the bottom floor 
um, they had a door that had biofeedback lab on it. And I thought, how interesting is this? <laughs> Who'd have thought it? So I ended up going to um, uh, interview with the uh, person, Colleen Shannon, Dr. Colleen Shannon, who was one of the major role players in 1970s in biofeedback and neurofeedback. And she taught both bio and neuro, and she taught hypnosis and self-regulation, stress management, all the stuff that basically set my path this direction. I took every course I could from her and did my master's thesis on combining EMDR with um, with biofeedback relaxation therapy to increase its efficacy. And now this has become a standard. I did present that in 1997 to uh, uh, Francine Shapiro's EMDR um, trauma center, uh, trauma conference in Baltimore. And so got done with my master's in 97, started in 95, started my doctorate in 2000, finished it in 2004, a year after I came to work to Houston. And um, this is when I was, I was about to turn 52 when I finished all my degrees. So I don't recommend the 34 year plan, but that's how I got here. So in my work in the fire department in emergency medicine since 78 as a commercial diver, uh, I, I had a big physiology background. My bachelor's was in uh, psychology and biology. And so it set me up for understanding the systems. And so making the switch from EKG to EEG was not that uh, difficult to switch for me. And it seemed like uh, I, started all, no, I started all this work in 2005, started doing my first EEGs. And I've done probably close to 10,000 right now. So <laughs> it's been quite a passion of mine for many years. And it, it took about 10 years of intensive uh, mentoring, which you have to have great mentors out there from Jay Gunkelman, an hour a week going over six to eight cases a week that I would send to him. And so that's how I got all his uh, information packed into my brain. So that's what I'm trying to do now is share it with the world. And uh, so that's that's how I got here. It's a it's a long road, but uh, it's been a very fruitful one because I just don't look at things the way everybody else does when it comes to these EEGs. Something something about them steps out and and says something to me. So so like Jake Uncleman, you kind of read the EEG and get the story of the person behind it. Correct. Now you're you're sharing all of, of your knowledge in, in lots of different ways. Uh, you have two organizations, the Houston Neuroscience Brain Center and Clinical Neuroanalytics. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Well, the parent company, the LLC, is uh, Clinical Neuroanalytics, and I started this back in 2019 when Jake said, "You got it. You're on your own." <laughs> Basically, kicked me out of the nest, and so it's a. I said, okay, you know, I was doing the studies and then I would see what he said and I would see how close we were. And when I got to be about 95%, I felt pretty confident that, you know, I wasn't going to miss too much of the serious things. And so I started doing these studies um, in, like I say, 2019 uh, for uh, several centers throughout the country. I think I'm right now working with about 30 centers throughout the country that send me data. Now we have the distinction of having two neurologists on our team. Dr. Michael Vengro is from Dallas. He reads the raw EEG. Meyer Proler with Jay Gunkman read mine, but Meyer has since died. And so uh, when he retired, uh, Michael Vengro took over. And so he looks at the raw EEG, looking for uh, gross abnormalities, reasons to refer for further testing, MRIs, this kind of stuff, calling encephalopathy. And uh, he's an electroencephalographer and epileptologist. And then my other one, you may know, is Dr. Uh, Robert Turner, Rusty Turner. And Rusty started with me. He's QEG diplomate. I'm not a QEG diplomate. 
so I've always had relied on Jay and the uh, processing of all the uh, BSI processing, Brain Science Institute processing of all the maps. But the most important thing I did learn is you've got to be able to look at that EEG and see it. And if you uh, if you see something in maps, you don't see it in the EEG, it does not exist. So <laughs> it, uh, it's what I'm trying to teach people now is pattern recognition because it's a very vital part about looking at the EEG. And so that's the uh, that's how I got down through that part of my life and, and coming up with what I've come up with. But I did have my master's and doctor both in social work. But my doctorate was primarily statistical analysis and research. I got into that and love that part of it. Um, you know, you're not supposed to be a brain scientist if you're a, you know, trained as a social worker. But I think this gives me a little bit of an advantage, especially with my background in emergency medicine. So it's uh, I can see a broader picture and say, OK, what else is influencing this brain? It's not just in the brain. It could be an environmental toxin. It could be mold. It could be a lot of things. Uh, we're actually doing a presentation on the 22nd this month with discussions with Dr. Ron on uh, lab abnormalities in their uh, physical and psychological presentation and then who would be the appropriate referrals. So that's something that I think everybody would learn, want to learn about. I could probably have conversations with you uh, all day. I mean, it, it, the cues that I get, I, I don't do mine uh, either at this point. I send them out. I, Rusty actually looks at at mine mm -hmm. and, and I get them done. Uh, and the when I when I get other people to do neurofeedback training who've had QEGs elsewhere, often it's just the report and there isn't a neurologist report, there isn't a discussion about the raw EEG. And I look at these reports and don't quite know what to do all the time with them. And I, I want to collect the data again. Uh, so just just um, the, the information in the raw EEG is is invaluable. And I think more of us should be doing what what you're talking about. But uh, we are here to talk about your uh, talk that you're going to give for the NRBS on the on the 22nd, and it's going to be about uh, addiction in the adolescent brain, particularly a video gaming addiction. How excessive is that problem? I mean, wh what's the problem here? How would you define it? Well, it's primarily male, and there's a reason for that. The amygdala in the males are 17% larger than females, so they get more of a rush from the video game. So we, we do have some females that are video gamers, but they don't seem to have the same uh, disabling addictions that uh, the males have. I did a study back in 2000 and, what was it, 2005 with uh, Dr. Colleen Shannon. And uh, no, I guess this was 2000 when I was in her class class she, ta uh, she taught before she died about the development of psychopathology in adolescence. I actually was working in patient psychiatric at the time uh, in a Millwood hospital in Arlington. And um, I'll be presenting this in this, uh, in this presentation about, number one, what is the reason why males get into this and so heavily into this and then can't get out? And uh, a lot of times it has to do with uh, what I call they're using video gaming as an internal isolate to keep from dealing with issues of themselves that they're <laughs> that they don't want to deal with. You know, it's a distraction. And once they get into it and feel like, oh, I'm quite competent in this, you know, cyber world, uh, they don't want to go back to the real world. So they don't put any energy into developing their own skills for, you know, independent living, <laughs> making, uh, you know, uh, making a living somehow and developing a family is just stay in the cyber world. So that's what's so frustrating about this. And I've treated a lot of these young males uh, 
with limited effectiveness because if you can't get the home environment to change, if the home is accepting and won't doesn't want to go through the hassle of putting up the boundaries of playtime because they don't want to have the onslaught of anger coming from their young male, then they're stuck with their males the rest of their lives. I call them, you might as well be uh, like kind of like a house pet, you know, just they're just fine as long as you leave them alone, let them play their games. But that's about all you're going to get out of them. So, so I get a certain number of uh, referrals for primarily males who who are having this issue, and a, a pattern that I'm I'm seeing at least, and I'm I'm curious what what you're finding as well is that uh, a lot of a lot of kids who are diagnosed with autism, uh, particularly high functioning autism, seem to have an issue with technology overuse over gaming. I'm curious if you're finding anything similar. Uh, certainly. And I did a study back in 2012 on male success rate in college. And what I found is that in 1981 was the last year that males and females graduated equally. This is comparing white males to white females to kind of keep the demographics the same. In 1994, they took the biggest reduction in graduating, even though they were enrolled equally they graduated like uh, eventually it went down to 38% males to females. And that was quite a reduction. So the, basically the males aren't able to walk the stage. They go to school, but they can't self-regulate and keep, you know, and I've had many come back from college after one semester, flunked out or two semesters, they pull them out and, and they crawl into the games and that's the extent of it. So that's the trouble with when we're looking at, males and, and, and success rate, what are these guys going to do? It's just such a, a travesty to see that the uh, autistic population has the further, uh, once they are high functioning and they're more able to see how the world is reacting to them and treating them and everything else, cyber is a nice, safe place to be. But I think what has happened is those little uh, engineers and scientists with the horn rimmed glasses with the tape on them and everything else that would have been great workers throughout the rest of their life, they end up in the games and they, uh, games are all about instant gratification and not delayed gratification. School is delayed gratification. If you teach and reinforce instant, it's hard to get them to, to acquiesce to, to doing the hard work it takes to build a skill or to get an education to get those degrees. So I think the autistic population are very vulnerable. And I think we've lost a whole cadre of scientists and engineers that would have been great with us, but the games just are too addicting for them. They just can't overcome it because they're treated fairly and, and you know, like superhumans in the games. We're talking about this as an addiction, and and I know there's a little bit of debate about whether this can really be considered a, a, an addiction. And there's no there's no DSM category yet. I mean, I think it's under review. I think the ICD does does list uh, gaming addiction. So how do you see it as either similar or different from what we traditionally think of as substance-based addictions or gambling? Well, I, I see it as no different. They're actually trying to put a program together nationally for addiction centers to be able to treat gaming addiction. Um, if it's messing with your, destroying your family life, destroying your social life, isolating you, uh, it's an addiction. You know, I don't care if it's a substance or it's a video game or it's gambling. It's still an addiction that is disabling a person's future. And so I think we need to take it very seriously. And it needs to start very early 
uh, getting this information out to parents because, you know, they're just happy their child is sitting there and enjoying themselves and having fun. I tell parents all the time, it's not your job to make your child happy. It's your job to prepare them for independent living someday. <laughs> if they don't want, if they want to move out as soon as they can, I congratulate the parents. You've done your job well. That's what you want, not to live under your rules. So <laughs> it's, um, it's devastating. It's devastating to the families and everything else. But then again, when you think about centuries, we've had, you know, children living in the basement that never move out, adult children. And, you know, I can't really, maybe that's, maybe that's a need of the parent to have the child to not lose their parent hat that they wear. <laughs> and, and, and so I'm not going to say that I'm not going to judge them because that may be a totally working relationship. But then again, when they die, then that's when they have, have to have all the trust set up and everything else because these child, children, which I've seen age into this and their parents die, uh, are, have no skill sets for independent living. And that's, that's a scary part when it comes to that. Well, if it's working for them, they don't come to see us. And I think also not having independent living skills, that's, I think there's a rise in, in, in adulting programs that take these young adults and sort of teach them how to, how to do it. In terms of treatment, you, you, you mentioned a little earlier that you've had limited effectiveness. And I think that that's really been true, at least in, in sort of traditional substance use and healthcare. How is it being dealt with? How is gaming addiction being dealt with by substance abuse centers, which is, is the primary approach or by any other part of the healthcare system? With limited success, of course. Um, I was working with a program to try to put one at Louisiana State University, LSU. But I said, if we're going to put something like this together, it can't be put together like the old uh, addiction programs. It has to be put together, understanding that these, uh, we've got to look at the brains. Is there something inside the brain that is uh, that we can work on with neurofeedback? whether it's the uh, anterior cingulate issue with the OCD component to it, or is it, is it something else? But we have to look at that. And also, I think there's a, an attempt by psychiatrists who get these cases to medicate these children, these young adults, and it's not working. So again, if we were to look at their EEGs, we were to look at what the medication recommendations could be based upon you know, a look at the organ we're trying to treat instead of just basing it on symptoms, I think we'd be further ahead and not uh, mismedicating and helping to uh, at least provide what is needed and not what may make them worse or make them want to crawl into the games even more. Sometimes I think our best attempts are um, are in the wrong direction and some we need a paradigm shift. The um, World Psychiatric Association, February 20. Uh, 2022 came out and said that all the, for the past 50 years, all of the psychotherapies and all the pharmacotherapies aren't showing to be efficacious and we need a paradigm shift. And I think this is something most everybody missed, but I read research, so I got it and I'm making a big deal of it because this is what I'm talking about. We need a paradigm shift in how we treat. I think that if we, if we didn't have medicine taken it the wrong direction, we could possibly do better with our psychotherapy. But it's hard to do neurofeedback when you want to speed up the brain and they got an antipsychotic slowing it down. It just doesn't work like that. So uh, uh, I think we all are having those struggles, but there's more and more psychiatrists out there right now that are looking for more 
uh, data to help them when they get to that third or fourth medication and they don't know where to go next. Yeah, it would be nice for them to to turn to us more and, and maybe that's happening. I think for, for these these kids who have this addiction, the, the traditional approaches to addiction don't seem to work very well. And, and there aren't that many programs, at least in the U.S. I mm-hmm. mean, there's the Restart program in Washington State. There's a few others. But I think one of the reasons there there isn't is because it's hard to know what works. I think there are some other reasons as well that have to do with how seriously we're taking this compared to, to other countries. But in terms of getting something that works, you, you mentioned neurofeedback, of course. And sort of shifting to that, that's an area that I think others of us in this world ha- have been talking about for some time as well as you. And there's Eric Pepper, who co-wrote the book, uh, Tech Stress. And there's Mary Swingle, who has her iMinds book. And the way she talks about it is that the addiction sort of hijacks the creativity parts of the brain and sort of make these people kind of lose a lot of their oomph, so to speak. Well, it's not just that. It also is the, uh, the fact that when I was growing up, we didn't have those kinds of toys. Uh, they weren't, uh, our entertainment was not created for us. We created our entertainment. So we've lost that also in the generations that children don't know how to develop a game. You know, we had a broomstick and a, a walnut. We had a baseball game, you know, <laughs> we could make something out of anything. These kids have lost their creativity. And when you crawl into the games and they're so dynamic and everything else that, uh, it does thwart the development of creativity and not just in the video gamers, but in all that uh, generations right now, because, you know, how often have you ever fixed a game or something that broke? You just go out and buy your kid a new one. It's like nobody fixes anything anymore. So, you know, when I was growing up, we didn't have enough money to pay for having anything replaced. So it was like, okay, duct tape and uh, banding wire, and we'll make it go for another few months or so. But uh, I think that's where we've lost a lot of that creativity in our youth. And it's it's because we provide total entertainment for very little investment. And it's, it's not just entertainment. I mean, the phones that we carry around are entertainment. They're also work, social, family, education. Everything Who reads is... a map anymore, you know? Right. Exactly. <laughs> Who remembers exactly. a phone number anymore? Nobody. Are you enjoying this podcast? Want to hear more from our guests? Come to their NRBS webinar. We have both free and very inexpensive continuing education programs. So whatever level of interest you have in biofeedback, neurofeedback, and neuromodulation, you'll find plenty to choose from at nrbs.org. Follow the links in the show notes. We hope to see you at an upcoming program. So, so what can we do about it? What, what can applied psychophysiology add to our understanding and our treatment of this issue? Well, I think that's where we have to have a good combination to address whatever issues there are in the brain through neurofeedback. Excellent. But then you got to have therapy to work with the families to see really how committed they are to make changes to put up those boundaries, to say no, and to tolerate the the, the, the young male's obstinance to, well, everybody, all my friends do this. Why can't I do this? I don't understand. You're mean parents, you know, and they just berate the parents. And that's tough to do. That's, that's the part that really takes the work, but it's got to be a combination of changing the environment and changing the brain. If you change the brain, it's just like sending a kid to a, uh, a wilderness camp for six weeks and bring them back into the same environment. 
what are you going to do? It's going to revert straight back if you don't change the environment. So that's where the real work has to be done is the combination. But you have to work with the family system. And if the family system is not interested in making those changes, I had a person, I had a young guy who had a scholarship to TCU as a swimmer. He was also an avid gamer. Well, he went and gamed more than he swam and <laughs> lost his scholarship, comes back home in fall of the next year. He was on probation one semester and then they took him out. We worked on him. We're doing neurofeedback for six months. We, well, I guess September through December. And really made, we did pre and post and middle cues. Uh, Laura Childress did the actual treatment on him. She did a great job and recorded everything. We had his brain in a great place. He was starting to make progress and his parents bought him a video game for Christmas. In six weeks, he was back worse than he was before. He had just saturated into that game. So, okay, if you're an alcoholic, you can't keep alcohol in the, in the, in the house, you know? <laughs> it's just not gonna work. You can't be a bartender if you're an alcoholic. So why do we think it's any different with video gaming? So that's where the real work has to be done. And it has to be done conjointly with uh, the neurofeedback practitioner, because if not, I don't think we're doing proper treatment if we don't look at that aspect of it. Focusing a bit on the neurofeedback, are, are there biomarkers that you're finding? Are there patterns that you're seeing in these brains? Well, traditionally in any addiction, you're going to see possibly a uh, uh, an anterior cingulate issue, which is frontal, central midline slowing, which uh, that's what led me to understanding how video games are a neurofeedback system to make the brain more ADHD because that's your distractible ADHD, your high theta beta ratio. Um, so that's that's what we do find in you know when we do this, or we find a very fast um, alpha and beta spindles, things like this that could possibly be. If they're not in the games, the anxiety is just too, too much. So if they distract themselves by being in the game. So you got two different components and you can have a combination of both. But, you know, you got to address that. Now, anterior singlets, by their nature, just, you know, is, is their deeper brain structures and take a lot more training, and a lot more treatment in order to try to re-regulate those. But again, it's that it's that trigger thing. Yeah. You know, if we. If it is a fast alpha and beta type pattern, then we know that uh, we better be doing some biofeedback relaxation therapy in combination with it uh, and maybe some alpha theta neurofeedback to give them the ability to relax without jumping into the games, give them another way to do it. So I think those combinations of biofeedback, neurofeedback and therapy are, are really beneficial. But again, you uh, I found this out from one of my young kids I was training and he was doing great during the week came in twice a week and by Monday he was worse and come to find out he's playing like 40 hours a week and I can't outrun a 40 hour a week habit with two hours of bio, a neurofeedback a week. It just doesn't work. So I think that's where we have to be responsible uh, clinicians and say, I'm sorry, I don't want to waste your money. As long as they're gaming this much, there's just no way we'll, we, we can outrun it. And, and are you primarily doing amplitude training with these yes, folks? That's okay. all I do is amplitude training. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, but, uh, you know, the, it, it, I find I can do everything with amplitude and it's got the greatest amount of research out there on it so far. So how long is it taking, uh, assuming you get the, the family piece into place, you get the behavioral piece into place. Is this kind of the rule of thumb 40 training session approach? What are you finding? How, how, how are people responding to the training? Well, like I say, I've had some really good success stories. 
Uh, I think there's two camps of gamers. I think there's the high testosterone gamers, and I think there's the low testosterone gamers. And the low ones are your nice, meek, very sweet children. As long as they can game, they're just a pleasure to be around. The high testosterone gamers are the ones that are drinking and <laughs> got the big old headsets and they got everything going and they're just challenged and they're just pushing hard. And, you know, and they're really, I mean, uh, they can get really addicted. But those, I seem to have better results at pulling out of the games when they really see that the real life is so much more. But they are interested in dating. The low testosterone, they're not interested in dating. They're not, they're not interested in relationships or anything. So I think that we have to look at those two camps and say, you know, who, who have we got the best shot with? Well, <laughs> I know the high testosterones. I've had better, much better results with those guys because eventually they say they get bored. Uh, now, I do know that there is a protective um, something in certain children, certain young adults, young males, that if they're good in math or music, they usually don't have a long-term addiction issue. So that's one of my first questions. Are you good in math or music? And usually you can see that. Uh, they've got a really good uh, parietal strip and a very, very beautiful alpha back there just um, banging away real rhythmically and everything else. And that seems to be something. I don't know what the connection is. I haven't, I haven't done a paper on it, but it's just an observation that those are, the, not, uh, those are my best results because they, they're not really truly addicted. We just got to get them into the real world. Take the, I want to take the guys and let them experience what real world toys are. Let's go and get a drone and fly a drone rather than be in a video game. You know, let's go and take martial arts instead of being in a video game. <laughs> let's go and learn to shoot instead of being in a video game. Okay. You know, there's our wonderful, you know, real, they say boys don't grow up. They just change the size of their toys. And <laughs> I used to uh, have a little fire truck I played with in a sandbox, and then I drove a fire truck for 20 years. It's like, yeah, just change the size of my toys. So I think those are the ones that we have the best advantage with. It's almost like with when when the behavior is more intense, it's easier might not be the right word, but more effective uh, to change it. Whereas when it's sort of a lower level, it's harder to to make that shift. There's uh, it's it's identity. The the low ones have a a poor sense of who they are outside the games and the other ones uh you know i had this one he said i said tell me about your gaming who's your who's your favorite avatar or whatever he said crusher warrior i said i want to talk to crusher i don't want to talk to you and i got him to switch into this crusher warrior and he answered completely different i mean his tone of his voice and everything else and it's like oh my god he's become a cyber entity completely he's his whole life is supporting a cyber cyber entity that doesn't exist and i think that's one thing we got to look at is how we get them back to understanding that they're an individual human outside the games and what they can do and so maybe that's one of the ways we can focus is give them some sort of individual relationship with themselves because that's what's missing i find that one one of the struggles or challenges i have with with these folks is so much of their lives, not just the gaming, but so much of their lives is online. And, and I think what you're saying relates to that. It's it's who are they outside of the game? And that's, I think, becoming increasingly difficult for people to figure out since, again, their school, particularly these last few years with the pandemic, when so much of school has been online, so much of work has been online, even if you were not 
necessarily addicted to gaming, there's almost no escape from the sort of virtual world. True. And we haven't even talked about the EMF, the electronic, you know, the, the EMF has just completely changed our world. And it takes, uh, according to Darwin, 14 generations for a species to adapt. And I guarantee we haven't been 14 generations since the since we started even having radio waves in the, in, in the airwaves. Absolutely. And in, and in fact, I, I, I talked to Rusty on a previous episode of this, this podcast about that issue. And um, it, it, I, I think that the EMF uh, and the technology in general probably has changed our developmental trajectory more quickly and more effectively than kind of anything else, at least certainly anything else man-made, prior to this. I think we are changing um, in, a, in a lot of very fundamental ways that we can't even really study quickly enough. And so the question is, what 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 is that going to have to do? What, what will that do to us as a species, not to mention the individuals we are struggling to work with? Well, I talked to an individual that was actually working on developing a neurofeedback, I mean, a video game that would promote positive change by not, uh, you know, it wouldn't be based upon this uh, getting a person into this theta for an extended period of time so they could be in the game playing, but it would actually not like SimCity because nobody that played Monopoly or SimCity ever became a CEO of a company. You have to get out there and do it. And I thought, well, you know, that's really a, a novel approach. If you could find a way to activate using EEG and quantitative EEG brain mapping while they're doing it to activate uh, delayed gratification centers, to activate uh, sense of self centers, to activate all this kind of stuff, uh, I think it would be possibly a technology way to recover from that but it would have to be something that would be inviting enough to say, here's another path for you to go down. Let's see if we can make your brain better, not make your brain worse. I think that's what we're trying to do with the neurofeedback, but we don't have the, the millions and millions and millions and billions of dollars to put into making our video game <laughs> activities yeah. and neurofeedback um, to that level. Yeah, I look, I look at the feedback I'm able to give compared to the simplest game that people are buying and it's it's clearly hard to keep the attention of of uh the kids i'm working with I, i've switched primarily to, to videos at this point as feedback because the other games are just boring uh, and that's a problem with these brains they don't like boredom so i like to end end these discussions with a couple of one thing questions if that's okay so so what is one thing you want our audiences to take away from what you're talking about today. Don't give up on the tough cases. Uh, so many people get fr so frustrated. Uh, get inventive. If you find something that works, publish it, share it. I think that's where we really need to be uh, bringing ourselves together. Hey, I, you know, case presentations are excellent, uh, you know, in, in what they found that did work because somebody, I think, too often, too many of our graying society we have right now in this field are taking stuff to the grave with them. And that's sad because they want to harbor some sort of, I don't know, monetary gain over what they've learned. But it's like, no, we need to share this information terribly with everybody. So anybody that has any sort of uh, good fortune with any of these cases or 
tremendously bad fortune. Let's know. Let us know what not to do and what we could possibly try. I think that's a what what we're bringing this field together for. Uh, we've got to always keep that focus in mind. We we are a lot of many little scientists out there <laughs> working on this every day, and we're going to hit on some stuff that's groundbreaking. But share it. And and what is one thing you would say to adolescents who enjoy gaming and enjoy being online? Well, that's that has to be individual, of course. But the big message out there is the world is a really cool place. And doing stuff for real is a lot more rewarding than doing stuff. You know, for instance, uh, when they came out with Guitar Hero, they had an opportunity to put a jack into an electric guitar and let you play with the greats and actually play a guitar, not just pretend to play a guitar. They lost the opportunity to, to show people that they could actually learn to play the guitar and with jamming with the greats, probably accelerate their learning. But they they didn't do it. That's that's where they lost out. So I think, you know, this is we have the opportunities out there, but I think a lot of opportunities have been missed just because we're looking at uh, they're looking at selling, you know, sell, making money and not improving lives. Right. So maybe maybe adolescents could listen to the message that if you're if you're online too much, you're you're just uh, giving it all to the man, and uh, you need to become your own person. Let's look back at uh, we didn't have video games when I was young, but in high school, I spent thirty five hours a week training and practicing for football. That's a lot of investment in time. I didn't end up with a scholarship. I was not quite large enough, but uh, it was a big investment of time, and not, I didn't put my energy into school. If I could go back and do it again, it was like, oh, my gosh, I should have avoided football altogether and, and put my energy into the studies, into the science, because I did love science, but I wasn't interested in doing that at that time. So video gaming for me was football, and, you know, there's not much of a – you don't develop very many social skills in a huddle. Uh, our conversations are really limited. <laughs> so I think that's what we got to remember is that we've all had this as, you know, some point in time growing up that something became too addictive for us that we just, uh, it was to the deficit of our future. And that was how I got derailed and took me 34 years to get to where I am because I was all about football and not about the reality that the world is a wonderful place out there. The, 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 the nature of what we're doing right now, the speed at which technology is giving us information. Uh, I can look up anything. You know, they've got this thing called Google. What a who would have thought it 20, 30, 40 years ago. You know, it's just amazing what we can get and what's at our fingertips. And if it's used properly, and the, these kids are very smart kids, there's, there's no limit to what they can accomplish. But there's not much training in developing a passion when they're in high school for something that could be their future way to not just make a living, but to to be their life's calling. And I think that's critical to all of all the young people out there right now. They're kind of lost. Well, hopefully we can we can start to get them back on track. Thank you so much for taking time to to talk with me today. If people want to find out more about you or your work, what's the best way to find out? Our website is um, www.hnbraincenter.com. And I've got a lot of videos um, in the media section. I've got a lot of my papers in there. I try to keep it pretty well updated. We've got a large uh, clinical practice here in Houston. 
I've got six therapists that work with me uh, in varying degrees. I start them out as little bachelor's level people and grow them all the way up to masters and fully licensed. And so by the time my senior person has been with me since 2014. So <laughs> she's fully licensed. She's my assistant director now. So they've got a place. So that's what I'm doing is uh, developing uh, a center though, so that when I am no longer in it, kind of like Jay's checking out himself, it will live on. Uh, and I think that's what we got to do is we got to start preparing the younger generation of therapists to um, to be thinkers, to be innovators, and to always be open to different ideas. Well, that, th those are some wise words, and we'll we'll include the link in the show notes. And the videos are great for anybody who has not seen them. I've been watching them. Uh, and don't forget that you can you can join Dr. Ron when he gives his talk to the NRBS on March 22nd as part of the continuing education series. So thank you again. Thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome. I'm going to enjoy this. Uh, it's great. Tell everybody hello for me. You've been listening to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a production of the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. Go to nrbs.org to find out more about the organization, including our trainings, monthly webinars, and yearly conference. Our guest today was Dr. Ron Swatsina, Director and Chief Scientist of Neurophysiology Research at Houston Neuroscience Brain Center and founder of Clinical Neuroanalytics. You can learn more about him and register for his March 22nd continuing education talk in the show notes. You can also subscribe to this podcast following the subscribe here link or wherever you get your podcasts. We really want to hear from you, so be part of the ongoing conversation by contacting us with your thoughts, ideas, and questions at healthybrain at nrbs.org. Leave us reviews as well. It really does help podcasts like this one reach more listeners. Healthy Brain, Happy Body is produced and edited by me. The theme music is Catch It by Coma Media. Be sure to join us on our next episode as we continue to explore the keys to our well-being on Healthy Brain, Happy Body.